We all love fantastical books, but how do these get made? Who takes all that raw material, polishes the edges, and turns the story into a shining jewel? We will explore this magical process, the making of fantastical novels, with Enclave Publishing Creative Director Jamie Foley. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and sometimes explore how they get made. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and the co-author of, uh, what was it again? Oh, The Pop Culture Parent. The day may come when I swap out that book at the top of the show, but it is not this day. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I went to a bookstore and did not buy a book. So I'm going to reward myself for that self-discipline with another book. And this is episode 196, How Do Fantastical Books Get Made? And we will be joined in a moment by Jamie Foley. At Lorehaven, we mostly explore books, but occasionally we take breaks to explore movies and things like we did at our website, lorehaven.com, last week. Two new articles, one about the uh, Netflix action space opera movie Rebel Moon, and the other one deconstructing some harmful, frigid ideas from the Frozen sequel, Stop by Lorehaven and subscribe free to get those updates and especially sign up for the Lorehaven Guild. That is our castle in the cloud on Discord. This month, we are wrapping up our book quest through The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, and we will be announcing a new book quest shortly for the month of February. Speaking of new books, our top sponsor is Enclave Publishing. Uh, actually, Jamie Foley hails from Enclave Publishing. So they get a little bit of extra exposure here for their upcoming release in February called Mortal Queens by author Victoria McCombs. They vanish without a trace, disappear into the night. Each year on the center island, one girl is chosen to be the next mortal queen of the idolized Fae. The mortals praise these lucky girls, but their daughters are never seen again. The Fae realm is eternal night where disputes are settled by chess matches, power is acquired through the most devious kinds of trickery, and seven elusive kings roam. The Fae hide their faces behind masks and guard their glass hearts to keep them from shattering. But beyond the veil of this luxurious paradise, a dark secret simmers, for their queens have disappeared. When aspiring artist Althea is selected, she is desperate to avoid the same mysterious fate. But with no one to trust, she conceals messages in paintings and receives anonymous replies from a stranger who slowly reveals the tale of a girl who outwitted the Fae. Only if she is clever enough will Althea survive the fate of the mortal queens. As long as the king who cannot love does not claim her first, this is book one of the Fae Dynasty series by Victoria McCombs. Mortal Queens coming out in February from Enclave Publishing. You can see that cool cover. Get all of the information about that in our show notes for episode 196 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Now I hear the cry of a griffin. Our next guest is swooping in on the back of a griffin with an irritated dragon hot on her tail. Award-winning sci-fi fantasy author Jamie Foley loves strategy games, gardening, and making lemba spread. She is terrified of red wasps and uses them for lightsaber training. When not working as the creative director at Enclave Publishing, the typesetter for the Christian Writers Institute, or a suspicious monarch at Fayette Press, she's probably drawing maps to Care Paravel. Her husband is her manly astronaut preacher muse. They live between the Texas Hill Country and the family cattle ranch, where their hyperactive spawnling and wolf pack roam. Jamie, there are so many links for you in the show notes so people can keep track of your work, but it's so glad to have you in the studio for actually, I think the first time. 
Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. I absolutely love the podcast and I love hanging out with you guys. So it is surprising. This is my first time actually on the podcast. Woohoo. Welcome. It just took the right kind of topic. And what you do is so many things, but ultimately what you do is you help make books. You not only have your own fantasy novels, links in the show notes, uh, but you also help make other people's books. So we're here to learn how that gets done. But I have a couple of concessions here left over from uh, the stocking stuffers. The first one is just a reminder, if you happen to cross this episode, faithful listener or faithful listener to be we're not a writing show, you know, we're not going to help you get published necessarily, although we are going to talk about what makes an amazing story for God's glory. But there are lots of other resources to help you get published. If that is your forte, you have a story within you that just needs to get out in the world, uh, we can point you in the right direction, but but not here. This is more of a behind the scenes glimpse. I like to think of this as the, uh, the material in the Lord of the Rings appendices, uh, not the books, but the movies where they take you behind the scenes and they show you the workstations and they show you uh, all the craftsmen who are assembling the armor from uh, handmade chain links and all that stuff uh, that Richard Taylor was talking about. Uh, the intent is to show you how they do it, not necessarily to say, go thou and do likewise. It probably inspires people to do it, but uh, that's a kind of an incidental effect here. Mainly, we just want to know, Jamie, yeah, how, how these books get made. And I think we'll start after the acquisition of the manuscript, you know, there's this whole deal where, you know, a writer has a story and then, you know, when the writer and the book, you know, love each other very much. And then suddenly the book <laughs> is born uh, and uh, and and stars shine in the sky and uh, and the agent smiles kindly upon you. And then suddenly you get a deal, you get a book and you move into turning that raw gem of a book uh, into something uh, that can be polished and then uh, sold for the happiness of readers. So let's start with chapter one. Editors help make the story fitter for print. Jamie, how does this happen, at least at Enclave Publishing? Well, we do have a unique process, but at Enclave, we have several different phases of editing. So first it's acquired. And, you know, there are other resources on getting acquired, but once that happens, we have what's called a developmental edit. And basically, this is where we screen the story and make sure that the bones are really strong, the plot is good, the promises are kept, the characters are intriguing and good. And if there's anything that is annoying or, <laughs> you know, not necessarily what the target audience would want, that those things are screened out. Then after that, we have copy editing and potentially line editing. But basically, this is where the sentence structure and spelling, grammar and everything like that are, we attempt to do our best to catch every issue that could be said in a better way let's say. And then after that, we have proofing, which is where we're really trying to eliminate typos and anything like that. Then it goes to typesetting. And then we give the author one final proofing pass after it's been edited to look and see if maybe there's something that could be formatted a little bit better, something that could look a little bit better. And then maybe there's one or two typos still hanging around and we eliminate those in that final proofing pass. Mm. So all the uh, things I remember from English class in high school, like split infinitives, turned up to dangling 11. participles and adverbs. And so that's all in the, uh, I guess that's the copy editing phase. Is that right? Yes. And we have a different editor for each one of those passes so that we have multiple eyes on it. Gotcha. So this is like a triple layer of editing. And Jamie, I want to ask you, I mean, Zach and I have known you for quite some time, but 
are you you do this professionally but just asking you straight up are you a nerd for this process like is it fun uh, i mean in small doses or or is it is it work or is it fun work like what what how do you, how much do you like this i love it a lot okay <laughs> so i i was the managing editor for a little bit i think maybe it was 2 years but there was a little bit more spreadsheets involved and i am an artistic type so i'm just a huge nerd for christian speculative in general <laughs> And so even if a story is not my particular cup of tea, I'm all about creating it and being that little Oompa Loompa behind the curtain who's like making all the cogs spin and making it actually happen. And nobody ever sees it, but that's kind of where I delight and sit there and snicker with my evil laughter. (laughs) Now, this is a call to all of our faithful listeners. Uh, If you want to do this, you can find the profile photo of our guest at the show notes for this episode. Make fan art now of Jamie Foley as the Oompa Loompa behind the curtain, (laughs) possibly offensive fan art. I don't think she'll mind. And then they can uh, hang it up at the uh, remote offices uh, for the Enclave staff. Jamie Foley, the Oompa Loompa of editing. They have green hair, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the reason why I asked that, Jamie, is that I keep forgetting that I've been through this process, at least on the author side, because I was one of a uh, three-member team of authors for the Pop Culture Parent. And our book was published with uh, New Growth Press. And maybe it was just first author joys there and then after a while it gets to be more work but i really enjoyed the process i don't know whether i'm rare or if like dude everybody enjoys the process you know once you get there like no big deal shut up sit down uh you're not special but i i felt like like, i could just nerd out about the process like i no, i don't want to do that all the rest of my life i'd rather actually make the stories or make the books but just cutting it down you know in the developmental edit it was nonfiction, so it's a little bit different but similar cutting it down in the developmental edit and then going through and you know checking the grammar and the sentences and all that and then getting the proof was especially exciting and now i know exactly where all the typos are the first chapter you know there's a block quote uh, with the open quotation mark and then it fails to close the quotation mark and that is going to haunt me to the end of my days unless they ever fix it I, i just that part i really enjoyed i don't know why but i do yeah it's it's a huge amount of fun and um i hope i said the editing stuff correctly because I'm not an editor myself. But uh, I especially love doing this for speculative fiction because every project is different in its own fantastical way. And so some want a little heavier emphasis on the editing, whereas some uh, a heavier emphasis on the artwork. And so we work together as our artist team to try and make a cohesive feel for each project. So have you ever seen the early 2000s movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell? No. It's got, uh, oh, oh Zach man. Zach has seen all the movie. movies you have not seen. This is just a rule I learned a long time ago. So I'll, I'll do my best to describe the scene I'm thinking of. So Will Ferrell plays an IRS agent who suddenly finds himself in a novel that's being written. And he's hearing the narration <gasps> oh! of it. From uh, Emma Thompson. I have yeah. seen that. Well, like Winnie the Pooh cartoons? Right. Does he hop the little page crease in the middle to get <laughs> to the other side of the 100 acre wood? And so then he's, he's trying to figure out why am I in this story and who is this narrator? And he, he figures it out through a college professor uh, played by Dustin Hoffman. And he's like, oh no, you're in, you know, Emma, whatever Emma Thompson's character say, if you're in her novel, that means you're going to die unless you can figure this out. So they have to track her down, like, don't kill me. But but she's also trying to figure out the end of this novel and the publisher is like really anxious for her to finish. And there's this one scene that I always think about. It's uh, Queen Latifah. She's the she's some kind of higher up or exec at this publishing company. 
And she shows up at Emma Thompson's apartment with this whole stack of post-it notes. And she starts putting them on the table and on the floor and like, okay, you could do this or this. And so she's kind of like the editor, I guess, of like, we need to change this scene and we need to substitute this thing. And Emma Thompson like throws all the post-it notes away. She's like, we're not doing it that way. And so I, I've always kind of had that scene like, okay, this must be how publishing works. You've got like the crazy, completely right-brained author and then like the really like left-brained organized editor and they're, you know, they're just butting heads the whole time. Like, it, is that <laughs> accurate for how this process works? Is it that kind of like clash of will or is it, is it not quite that way? <laughs> not really. <laughs> I, I, I just have a life-size picture of all the Enclave staff like taking expensive trips to see one another to give one another post-it notes to design <laughs> story improvements. I mean, that sounds great, but I think some of that is probably for the big screen a little bit. <laughs> That was in movie days. Yeah, I have seen that movie. I just forgot what it was called and it's been so long, but oh my gosh, I that movie freaked me out because I realized, oh no, if my characters ever came to life, they would murder me. Like in my <laughs> first series, I have this guy who's like a veteran sniper and he would just kill me, like <laughs> period. Never but, see it coming. <laughs> right, absolutely. But... No, that's not the, quite the way it works. Um, not all of our authors are right-brained. We, it's actually really beautiful and fun to meet different authors with different personalities. There are certain threads that tend to be normally true. Like authors are all very protective of our work. You know, it is a beautiful thing. And so that's why sometimes we have different editors selected to work with different authors so that it's a good fit because different editors also <laughs> do things differently. And so sometimes you need a heavier hand and sometimes you don't. And so it really just depends on what the author needs and what the story needs. In my day job, I, I do video editing, video production. And uh, the first boss I had for this role, this is an, a ministry I work for, he said, you know, you have to kill your darlings. And, but no one likes to think of killing people or kill your baby so he came up with this new phrase, you got to have to club your baby seals. And oh my he, gosh. <laughs> and then we found a, like a meme that was like, stop clubbing, comma, baby seals. And it says, uh, once again, punctuation makes all the difference. And it showed these seals in like a dance club with like, you know, disco lights or whatever. And so that's always been kind of my phrase of like, you got to club your baby seals. Whatever kind of editing it is, there's baby seals there. They're really cute and really cuddly, but they just, they don't belong. You got to get rid of them. I was picturing like a warrior baby seal with a club, like a ready to go to <laughs> battle. Right. <laughs> well, I, I'm a bit of a Darwinian, unfortunately, when it comes to editing. If it needs to go, it needs to go. And survival of the fittest, you guys, that makes for better books. Like it really uh, does fit with the jewel metaphor established earlier, where the thing is wonderful all on its own, but it does need to be extracted from the soil. You got to clean it up, you know, get rid of the dirt. It'll pull out any minerals there that uh, don't make that jewel shine. And then it goes through three layers of polishing, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, that's about the same amount of layers I think we had for, uh, for our, our nonfiction book as well. Uh, and I'm somewhat familiar with the process just because I've had, it, uh, uh, had some experience in print journalism. So that's all of the uh, page work, though. But uh, like you said, Jamie, there's all kinds of artistry that's also going on at the same time as y'all are preparing the manuscript. But all of this editing uh, makes me think of our second sponsor, The Culling Begins by author Anthony Groot. Perhaps the next best Christian series that you could get into. It starts with The Culling Begins. 
a fictional story about 12 spirit oaks who guard Eden from the great deceiver. But after standing for as long as anyone can remember, the spirit oaks begin to vanish from the world, and two opposing forces begin to clash. The Spirit Oak Chronicles will take you on a journey of faith, courage, and horror, all to save Eden. This is The Calling Begins by Anthony DeGroot. The first installment of The Spirit Oak Chronicles is available in paperback and ebook wherever books are sold. You can see the cool cover in the show notes for episode 196 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, chapter two. This is the part where maybe we'll have some art in the show notes so you can see at least uh, some of the old proofs for a recent uh, enclave title, Steel Fire from the Gods. Jamie, we're into chapter two now. While all this editing or culling is going on, the artists are designing the book cover, the pages, and some uh, promotional material for the book. So where do we start with there, like chronologically, or is it all just kind of happening at the same time, uh, the artwork going on for the published book? Well, normally we try to start with the cover design because personally as a creative director and as a frou-frou artist myself, I prefer it if everything is not matches perfectly, but if there's a theme that is pulled from the story theme, that the art supports that. And so as while the publisher, my boss, <laughs> and the author are working together with the selected cover designer to find out what that look is, that's going to determine how I design the interior of the book, how our marketing materials look, any sort of swag or promotional material is going to be developed based on the theme that's decided by the cover designer. What are the, some of the things, when you say design the interior, what do you mean by that? So not every publisher does this, you know, whenever you have a chapter that is beginning, you could just have, this is chapter three and just literally just have three, or you can have a, a fancy frou-frou artist like myself go, wouldn't it be better if this three was a special three? Yes, <laughs> please. A, yes, please. Yes. And it had a wonderful font or if it had a splash of artwork from the cover. So for example, at Enclave, we have a book that's coming out pretty soon called The Chaos Grid. And it has like a dust storm because of the theme of the book is like, what if Texas in future Texas, there was an ecological disaster and it was turned into an absolute wasteland. And so there's a big dust storm on the cover. And so in the interior and in the the spine stamp and the the front foil stamp, everything has like dust everywhere. So it kind of hopefully immerses you into that story before you even start reading. To where you, you should feel like, oh, do I need to clean this page off? Is there something to get on here? <laughs> well, I was noticing this effect, Jamie, because I have the, a print copy of Kathy McCrum's uh, sci-fi novel Recorder. And the cover is by itself very striking. Um, it's a you know the image of our, our heroine, uh, the recorder, who uh, is disconnected from her drone and uh, all the information she's been trained to process as a child and must uh, rediscover what it means to be human. And it's this glorious matte finish. It's this great cover. But then the cover design doesn't end uh, after you open the book. I mean, it continues. It's a hardcover. So you've got the, the flaps on the inside. It's all one continuous image, of course, uh, that the designer has put together, extending to the back cover, too. But then I guess it's your elements then that you've put on the inside of the book, where if you go to chapter one, it's not just, like you said, it's not just chapter one. The words go, in this edition, at least it goes like almost all the way up the page. But then you also get uh, this, this splash of black and white uh, printed art, along with, for example, the main character's name in perspective. Or for Recorder, you know, you've got her serial number there. And then maybe other books, you may have an indication of place. And some readers, like I find myself kind of breezing over that. But it's nice to have it there. 
um, I can glance at the main character's name and go, okay, especially for a book that is part first-person perspective, which is recorder speaking as I, 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 and then we switch to other main characters who are in the third person. You actually get their names. I'm seeing more books like this, by the way. It's a very interesting way to blend the strengths of both approaches. But that also helps the reader. It's not just art for art's sake, but it actually serves a purpose in understanding where we are in the story. And, you know, it's not just a chapter switch. We're also switching characters. So little indications like that can help. Then I notice there's like this gradient bar uh, that's used in place of like, you know, three little dots or a paragraph divide to indicate that we've jumped to another scene. So things like that help tie it all together. And uh, that are, I think, as uh, Megamind said, presentation. Yes, that is my favorite when stories take a different turn, or we have different parts, or we have more things that I can have an excuse to design and get my hands all full of watercolor, basically. So Recorder was a really fun one. I really enjoyed doing the sci-fi design for the interior of that book. But one that I'm working on right now is Breath of Bones by Trisha Goyer and Nathan Goyer. And it's kind of like a steampunk slash diesel punk retelling of like a World War II story. It's fiction, but it's like World War II with golems. (laughs) And I'm having so much fun because there's multiple different characters. Um, Sometimes the author will also include like the date or the location of a specific chapter or scene. And so that's more that I can play with. And then every once in a while, they'll be like, oh, this is a newspaper clipping. And I'm like, yay, (laughs) then I can... I can design it to look like a newspaper clipping. Um, So this is a little over the top. You know, you don't see a lot of publishers doing this, but when the creative director is also the typesetter, uh, I give myself permission to do all kinds of weird things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about fonts for a minute or typography. If we're we're going to get really nerdy here. Excellent. So, okay, there's a running gag. I'm friends with a lot of graphic designers about the Avatar movie choosing papyrus, papyrus. for the uh, oh, no. the title. It's so niche, but not anymore. I was having so much fun. So then there's the, the Ryan Gosling SNL sketch. He has like PTSD over the Avatar logo. And my, my favorite part is when he's descri- <laughs> describing to this therapist, he's like, this professional designer just clicked the Avatar title, highlighted it, clicked the drop down box for font and just like a like a thoughtless child chose papyrus. <laughs> Along with every mega church uh, in the late yeah. 2000s, every emergent church movement. So I love this scene because I'm like, this is how I feel, honestly, because I, I don't really know much about typography. And so just recently I had to put together this newsletter and I had to, you know, make a title for it and figure out a font. And I must have spent, I don't know, an hour just looking at all the fonts. And I'm like, Ooh, I like this one. Oh, I kind of like this one. I don't really like that one. I like this one a little more. I was just a thoughtless child, just like scrolling through all of them. So <laughs> tell me there's a more scientific way to do this is like, what, what is your actual method for choosing a font? <laughs> There is a method to the madness. I wouldn't say it's scientific, but there's definitely a theme or an idea that's proposed by the styling of each font. And man, I was having so much fun talking with you guys until you just mentioned Papyrus. I just, so, <laughs> my heart just fell. I could have mentioned Comic Sans MS. No! <laughs> 
<laughs> Comic Sans is worse, I will say, in my personal thing. But yeah, we do put a lot of thought into the typography of the cover, and that is normally at the discretion of the cover designer. So we have some really great designers who are very experienced and understand that different stylings, different fonts portray an idea of this is a fantasy book, or this is a sci-fi book, or this is a time travel book. You can even portray the subgenre. Um, different types of fantasy, different types of sci-fi. You can drill down into that. And it's a very nuanced sort of thing that it just takes an experienced eye. And I will say sometimes I will go in and be like, don't do that font. <laughs> so recently we were working on a cover design where the artist was proposing their own ideas. And we love to hear what the artists want. Of course, we want to make them happy. We want to go along the lines of what they're doing. But the author had no idea that the font that they had chosen was like the most commonly used fantasy font. I know it by name. I immediately recognized it. And I said, I absolutely veto this font. We are not using this font. And the author has no idea. But if we would have went to print with that font, her book would have looked just like every other book and she wouldn't have known until maybe someone maybe someone would have pointed it out to her a couple of the years later so we try to be very unique and deliberate in the, our font decisions one thinks of the scripture passage faithful are the wounds of a friend uh, that's part of the editing process it's almost a discipleship uh, but that's what you sign up for if you're getting your uh, your book published by other folks uh, you've got friends and allies who are coming alongside to help make the book the best it possibly can be uh, Jamie, I've got the cover pulled up here from the, I think it was a November release, sci-fi from Clint Hall, Steel Fire from the Gods. I read it just like it sounds because the title on the book is just so imposing and you've got this uh, dark cybernetic mage creature levitating in the middle of it and there's all these cool little uh, techno flourishes to the letters, Steel Fire from the Gods. That's how it sounds. That's how it looks. How was the font choice uh, process there? Uh, this is such a unique choice. It, it fits its genre. You get this idea. It, there's an internet pundit who says, you didn't notice, but your brain did. Uh, you didn't notice that this was a book about the robots who wield elemental magic, but your brain did because the cover told you before it even tells you uh, out loud. Do you remember anything about the, uh, the font selection here or just the cover design process uh, for, uh, for Clint Hall's Steel Fire from the Gods? Yes, and this is why we pay graphic designers the big bucks. This is why they are worth every penny because they communicate directly to your brain without you knowing why you interpreted an art piece as pointing your mind in one direction or another. <laughs> and they absolutely deserve it. So Steel Fire from the Gods was designed by Kirk DuPonts of uh Captain Kirk. Captain yes. Kirk. He's at fictionartist.com and I highly, highly recommend working with him. He's a fantastic and very uh, experienced designer. And I believe that font choice was his straight up and we never argued. He's very, very good at making those decisions from the from the get-go. And the way that we communicate with him, we have a document called the AMSI. And it's like the Advanced Marketing and Sales <laughs> something, <laughs> I think is what it stands for. A but very, very powerful spell. Yes, it's a very high level spell. And so basically we have the author fill out many pages of questions. Um, we compare comparative titles, like what are some other books of different covers that you like? What does the main character look like? What are some important images or symbols or settings in the book? And then we hand that off to the cover designer and they look at all of the different things and they work their, woo, their magic and they come up with 
one or sometimes multiple different designs. Um, and we work in a certain direction with the author and the publisher from there. Jamie, I want to ask you about a book that I read a couple of years ago. It's the Illuminae Files. Uh, oh, trilogy. yes. <laughs> so that that seems to me like the ultimate in interior design, where it's not just like adding flourishes to chapter headings and font choices and uh, scene break icons, but it's like every page was different. Like you mentioned having a page that looks like a newspaper clipping. And every page in this book was like some kind of different format because it was basically like the notes that were compiled for a intergalactic lawsuit type thing where there's a planet that's, I'm trying to remember this, it's been a few years, but there was like a planet that was, there was a mining colony, but then there was a corporation that unleashed a virus or something on it. And then there's people that were discovering this and taking transcripts and video recordings and other kinds of like data that they were compiling. And so it, if it wasn't bound in like a book, you would, you get the sense that it's like this folder, like this giant folder of all this stuff shoved into it. Uh, you know, like that kind of scene you've probably seen in movies, but uh, what, what was your, what were your thoughts about, about that book? Cause I, I sounds like you've read it. Um, pure awe. I haven't read it, but I have flipped through it. And I thought to myself, how long did this typeset take? Um, Maybe a year. Maybe did they have a team of typesetters? Maybe there's one typesetter who is now a millionaire because I can't imagine a publisher ever paying regular rates for an immense project like that. Maybe it's the same typesetters who typeset the Bible and it takes them years and years and years to do it. That's absolutely a gorgeous project. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, on one hand, I'm like, oh, I would love to do something like that. On the other hand, I'm like, no, I'd like to keep my sanity and not ever have a project <laughs> that large. But it is a beautiful book. And I love how they use the artwork to tell the story. And we do that sometimes in typesetting when it makes sense, because we are just a small press. And I, I'm also a mom and I do have other hats that I wear, so I can't spend that much time. But I really enjoy it when um, for example, in the Enclave book that came out last year, March 2023, called Enhanced by Candace Cade, the story is set in China, or maybe it's future China. And so there are Mandarin or Cantonese characters that are placed throughout the design, and there are hidden messages for people who actually speak those languages. And at a certain point in the book, whenever the story switches because the character has learned a big lesson or made a decision. Um, There is a character that is hidden in the typeset in the beginning of each chapter. And at a certain chapter, it changes to a different character that has a different meaning. So it's kind of like an Easter egg that we intentionally stuffed in there just for fun. Um, So I love it when the art can actually speak to the story and enhance that experience. No pun intended. But I like that, you know, going from something as complex and, you know, overly designed in in a sense from Illuminate to to Enhance, where it's just this little thing that can make so much of a difference. I'm currently rereading, as I always am, the Wheel of Time series. And I just got to a chapter where I turned the page and at the top of the page was a wolf. It's like this graphic of a wolf. I'm like, oh, I know this is going to be a chapter about Perrin who's able to speak to wolves. And like, before I even read any of the the text, just that, you know, just that picture tells me that. And there's, there's lots of other graphics that they kind of reuse where, you know, immediately, oh, this is a chapter about this or with this character or this theme 
or this kind of conflict is going to happen. And that's really fun because it kind of sets the mood for you. Yeah. You know, it, it, it gets you in the right frame of mind because especially with that book, it's got like hundreds of POV characters. And so it's like, okay, well, I really wanted to hear more about what Rand is doing or what Matt is doing, but oh, okay, cool. It's a parent chapter. I like that, how you said it's that Easter egg to kind of get you to think on a little bit different level than just the, the words that are there. You start to think about the themes. You start to think about the connections. Yeah. And so that, and- that's like, to me, this is magic, like the, the typesetting and the interior design, because how do you take that story and turn it into a font? Like, what does this font feel like? Or like, what is, what font does this scene feel like? Or, you know, what graphic d- uh, could represent this moment in the story like that? To me, that's that's just black magic, like sorcery. <laughs> it's white magic, I promise. <laughs> no, uh, I love that. And there is one other book that I'm working on right now. I, I can't say anything about it specifically because we work so far in advance. But um, there's one where I'm doing multiple different art pieces for the interior that change as the story progresses. So it's kind of like the example that I gave for enhanced, but even more so. And I got special permission to do that for, so I'm very excited. But another piece of artwork that we use for the books to give Easter eggs or to bring people more into the story without them even realizing it (laughs) um, (laughs) is for our hardcovers. Um, we do something called a foil stamp and basically we can choose a special metallic um, sort of, well, it's not always metallic, but normally we choose like a silver or a gold that is pressed into the hardcover itself. Normally this is used for imprinting the spine and all of the, just the information on the spine. But more recently Enclave has been doing artistic stamps on the front cover as well. And so we have been taking that to the next level and um, working with the cover designer again, and sometimes it's a secret that the author doesn't even know until they unbox it and they open oh, it. Oh, that is fantastic! <laughs> yes. Merry Christmas, authors! Oh yes, if you want to see what this looked like, our first one just happened to be when Sarah Ella came out with the Wonderland Trials, and she didn't even know that that was something that we were going to begin doing, and it was a dream of hers, which we didn't know it was a dream of hers. But she used to play Alice in Wonderland, and the Wonderland Trials is, of course, based on that. It's a retelling, and she did her unboxing at Disney World, and oh, she wow. was live streaming it, and me and my other <laughs> coworkers were watching this live with bated breath and sure enough she opens it and she finds this beautiful stamp that has like a wonderland theme with the card suit spiraling out of the hardcover and she just starts crying on live stream because that was my first thought to put on my little amateur marketing hat and wonder oh i hope that was caught on video it was and it was live streamed for sarah (laughs) it's the unboxing that is marvelous well that's one thing i want to ask about in chapter three in just a moment jamie is the fact that enclave for the last few years has been putting out like not a amazing looking softcover novels, but these hardcover novels. So I'm going to ask about that in a moment. Once upon a time, it seemed that the hardcovers were rare, but uh, now they are not. Speaking of these crazy covers, though, I still remember, um, Zach, you mentioned this uh, this other series that has like this uh, amazing typesetting and like the whole thing feels more like a coffee table uh, novel uh, by what you described. But a similar effect was actually with at least two Frank Peretti YA uh, adventure mystery novels, I think published in the was it the late 90s or the early 2000s? I don't remember. It was called The Veritas Project. And it was Nightmare basically Academy. about Nightmare Let's Academy. Go. Yeah. Well, fir- first one was a Hangman's Curse, and the second was Nightmare Academy. Yes. Jamie, did you have the first editions of those books, the Y'all, hardcovers? I had them, and I was obsessed with Frank Peretti and Ted Decker growing up because that was really the only like speculative Christian that was 
That's all you could get back then there. other than Left Behind series. Yes. That's right. And they had such an amazing special thing on this. Okay, so I don't want to spoil anything, but I will say they are scary novels. And so I believe it was Hangman's Curse, which is the first book. I was reading it past when I should not have been. I was still a teenager at the time. Oh, you found out, didn't you? I found out. Okay, you <laughs> so- found out. I was reading. I should not have been reading. It was dark. It was like under the covers sort of thing. and But I did have a light on. And so I finally was like, oh, it's really late. I need to go to school tomorrow. I need to stop reading. But it was so addicting. And so finally, I closed the book. Y'all, it was glow in the dark. This, it was like, glow in the dark spider web. spiders all over yep. in my bed, glowing spiders in my bed. I was so scared from the yep. book, y'all. They got me good. <laughs> they never marketed that. It was a, it was a glorious Easter egg. They had done one of those oh. imprint things with glow in the dark ink or paint or whatever you call it on the front of that hangman's curse. And it's already green. It's a fabulous cover. And if I remember right, Jamie, it, I mean, it's hardcover, of course. And the, the outside, like you could take the dust jacket off. And if I remember right, like there was a different version of the illustration beneath with like little icons popping through i forget which ones i should have brought into the studio but they had like these cutouts for the dust jacket so just expense upon expense there even before you acknowledge that it's a hardcover and even before you put on the glow in the dark paint but then on top of that you open to the inside and every chapter has a different uh photoshop style uh illustrated blend you know it's it's not a custom illustration each time it's um you know, it, it's it's clip art, it's stock art they've put together to illustrate key scenes in the upcoming chapter. But wow, did they put uh, some serious uh, artistic might uh, behind Hangman's Curse. And then again, for Nightmare Academy. And then I really hope, uh, faithful listener, you can find those original editions if possible, because yeah, they are, they are quite a, a collector's piece. Yeah, chef's kiss to the publishing team for that one. Absolutely. And that's another reason why we normally do the cover design first and then do all of the other art spiraling off of that one. So if there's any synchronicity that can happen, I'm all over it. So before we get these books published and all of the art and all the editing and all of that, authors have to write those novels. And if that's you, perk your ears up for sponsor three, EJ Kitchens with the I Write How to Write a Novel course. Are you looking for a fun yet challenging writing class for your teen or yourself? I Write How to Write a Novel is an online writing course that will teach you how to write novels that your friends and even strangers will want to read, how to overcome writer's block and gather ideas, and much more. A mentorship option is also available to go along with the course. I Write is taught by E.J. Kitchens, a professional copy editor, former college lab instructor, and award-nominated author of the Star Clock Chronicles and Magic Collectors books. For more information and to enroll, visit ejkitchens.com slash courses. All of those links in the show notes for episode 196 or lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right. Chapter three, Jamie. Publishers print the book and send it to readers. This is the even more fun part if you're looking for fantastical novels, which we always are. Enclave started doing hardcovers, though, Uh, starting with the hardcover release. It's like putting the book in theaters. Uh, before you can get it on home video or streaming. And if I remember right, it seemed to me that uh, your publisher had taken that step back before it was cool or or before it just started to be cool again. And then suddenly I see these glorious hardcovers everywhere. Uh, any thoughts about uh, the virtues of hardcovers and only then moving into softcover? 
Yeah. So there are a lot of technical details that go into that decision-making. And so I don't want to bore everyone, but there's two main reasons. Number one, YA performs a lot better with hardcover. I'm not sure exactly why, but it could have something to do with bookstagram. There's a lot of Instagrammers and teenager girls love to take pictures of everything. And the hardcover seems to lend better to that. It can stand up on its own. (laughs) You know, our paperback would just flop over. But also there's different types of printing. So for indie printers, they normally use what's called print on demand. And it prints one book at a time. And it is not quite as efficient, um, cost efficient wise, if you're a publisher and you're printing thousands of copies at the same time. Um, So there's another type of more traditional press called offset printing. And if you are printing a lot at once, and then you can do hardcovers, and you can even afford to do special things with hardcovers, like the foil stamp that I mentioned previously. So whenever we were acquired by Oasis Family Media. I think it might be have been around that same time where we decided to upgrade. And we, we do paperbacks as well, a little bit further out, but we really enjoy hardcovers and we're so glad that that's taken off and there's a, a great appreciation for those. So that's our primary uh, method of selling books today. Yeah, I think the hardcover craze among younger generations is also due to screen fatigue. This is my personal theory. I don't have anything really to back this up. But, you know, so many people were locked behind Zoom rooms, uh, especially people in school that couldn't go to school in person. And so everything was behind a screen. And, and it's almost like, you know, in Romans 1, it says, you know, God handed them over to their desires. It's like, you know, everyone said, oh, these teenagers are always on their phones. And, and then COVID is like, OK, here you go. You'll have your screen all day long. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. And it, And I think a lot of teens really saw how bad that is for mental health. And it's like, I've got to do something. I've got to have things in my life that aren't on a screen. And so I I think physical books have really caught on because of that reason. But I've seen this with my own teens. The first like electronic device we gave them was a Kindle. Because we're like, all you can do with this is read books. Like there's no social media, there's no games, there's no nothing. Uh, And it was great for traveling. But since the, the COVID years, they've really don't use their Kindles very much. I mean, sometimes they do when they can't get the book from the library or when um, it's just too expensive to buy it. It's like, oh, well, I can just buy it on Kindle or we can check it out digitally from Hoopla or something and send it to my Kindle. But for the most part, they want a physical book. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, that's obviously that's all there was. There were no eBooks and and the audiobooks when I was a kid in the, the 80s and 90s. I mean, it was either tapes or CDs, which pick your poison. Neither one was good for a lot of reasons. You know, this is way before audible. So I think there's something to that, that we, that tangible experience of, of holding it. I mean, yeah, I mentioned the wheel of time. I, I have these nice, you know, we'll used hardcovers now, but growing up, I had the mass market paperbacks, which are like really short and, and because they're 800,000 page books, they're really thick. And so the, the covers on those books, you know, came off like within, I don't know, a couple hundred pages. But I still love holding those. I still love having to kind of like keep the cover on it while I'm holding it, you know, by my by my lamp on my bed. Because um, I, I think it's it's like there's just a connection that you get with that. And and I have even read some studies that you remember things better with the physical book because... A 100% in my case. Yeah, there's three-dimensional space. It's like, oh, I remember I was about a third of the way through, and it's like in the top part of the left-hand side. And you can kind of find things a little more easy because you, you have that muscle memory. Whereas with the screen, it's like, 
I don't know. I hit, you know, next page a hundred times and then that's, that's where that is. But I, I do want to talk about formats in a minute more, but what other insights do you have about hardcover? Cause it, that's the other weird thing to me is that hardcover is making such a, a comeback, not just physical, not just paperback, but hardback and har- a lot hardbacks are bigger and heavier. And it used to be that you would wait, you know, six months or a year to get that paperback. And so it is interesting that hardbacks are so popular. Yeah. And that's not everybody's favorite. You know, there are still some people who prefer paperback, but there's just something tangible and substantial about a hardcover. When you really love a book and you, let's say you've read it on Kindle, I hear a lot of people going, I loved it so much. I had to go get the hardcover because they want it to live in a substantial, respectable manner on their bookshelf forever, because that's how much they loved it. When you walk into a bookstore, there's the smell of paper. You know, that is a smell is associated with all different sorts of memories. There's a comfort there that is does not come through your Kindle screen. When you wake up on Christmas morning and you open up a package and there's a hardcover book in there, that's going to feel different than, hey, I bought you another 99 cent book on your Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> Check your email. That's right, just open yes. it up. It's already there. Jamie, I'm going to compare this to church denominations and the worship wars. Uh, because Ooh. that kind of tangibility, that you. <laughs> it's got to get in there somewhere. Uh, but that, a lot of people now, now this is kind of just very ungrateful of the youths these days uh, after their forebears and uh, Gen X and millennials and even some boomers, you know, worked very hard to get rid of the smells and bells and the lit- liturgical traditions and all of that. There was this idea, I think, well meant uh, for a lot of uh, Christian leaders and church denominations uh, that people were really through with the tradition and the tangibility. And there's been different Christian traditions that have corrected for the abuse of certain types of artistic expression in churches or certain types of ritual that just turns into you know empty pharisaical repetition. And so people say, get that junk out of here. It's just clutter. It's in the way. Uh, people think that it's about their traditions rather than about Jesus Christ and the gospel. So they get rid of it and they go minimalist. Well, then along arose a generation who knew not the stigma attached to the traditions. And so they say, you know what? Uh, We wouldn't mind if you got back a few nice wood carvings. And, you know, does every church really need to look like a warehouse or a coffee shop or some kind of minimalist office space? Like, could, could we could we go back to the stained glass windows and can yes, we put in some nice architecture? See now, you know, I don't mind not having stained glass. It's not a you know, it's not a make or break issue for me. But it would be nice to have it if we could. So if we can, if it works, you know, if it still makes a profit, you know, if it keeps the company afloat and uh, and it's not just a luxury item that people can't afford, then yes, bring it back. And so I think that's another reason why people do like the physical media including and especially uh, hardbacks is like you have both said there's the scent the tangibility in some cases you can run your finger over the cover and it's either a nice matte finish or it's a nice glossy there's some embossed elements there's a little foil overlay it catches the light it feels special it feels like it takes up space it feels like you are respecting the story and giving it and its hardworking authors and artists its due and I think that this actually is not just about, you know, manufacturing or affordability or trends, but it is, I think, about worship. You know, Christ wants excellence. And when we're talking about the tabernacle and Exodus and all of that, there's all these instructions from God about embossing things and, you know, make the pomegranates uh, sculpted like just so, or, you know, put the rings over here and the sensors need to be this diameter. And God takes an interest in these things. They are important to him. 
We don't believe that the outside is just a shell and the most important thing is the uh, soul within. Like, no, C.S. Lewis rightly said, God likes matter. He invented it. And so I think that's why we're finding out that a lot of readers like matter too. Okay, I'll give you that point. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of nostalgia there, especially for millennials who grew up with the older things. You know, we didn't have Kindles when I was growing up. We didn't even have phones, you know, until I was in like high school. Um, so we grew up with these sort of things. So I think there is a sort of feeling of home when we walk, walk into a traditional church or, you know, if we grew up in that manner or having a physical book. And the newer generations do seem to be like grasping those as well. Going outside, you know, touching grass, as they say. <laughs> now, and now you're touching the skin world. of a dead tree. It's the same yeah. impulse there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, Stephen, you mentioned the worship wars, right? So I, I grew up going to a very traditional Presbyterian church with my grandparents. My great-grandfather used to be a Presbyterian minister. Now I go to a Southern Baptist-ish, non-denominational-ish. Baptist in disguise. Yeah, very loud Transformers. I'm 007 Baptist over here. Right, right. It's kind of like the live music scene in Austin type church. Very, very loud music. Everyone's complaining about it's too loud. And there's a keyboardist that can press a button where it can make it sound like an organ. But then there's my childhood going to my grandparents' church in Dallas where there was a gigantic organ that took up an entire wall that was like 30 feet high or something. And I remember as a kid sitting there next to Pops, and he would point out this one particular pipe or whatever in the organ that was really big and you know thick. And he's like, you know, watch for that one. And that was like for the really low note and, and whatever song. And that was really fun to see that one move. And so it's not just that you're you're hearing it. it it's it was so tangible, like you're saying. There's something physical. And again, I, I think we've all kind of had our fill of the metaverse where we're like, maybe we don't want to live our lives uh, in a digital space. Maybe we want there to be something tangible. Now, I will say this. I like ebooks for certain genres. So I, I really like ebooks now, I've realized, for nonfiction. When for I'm nonfiction. Le- when I'm right. learning something, because I, I can highlight things and I can kind of save those in a, like a note or something, or I can share those things and have discussions about them. I really like audiobooks for biographies because then it's just like, it feels like someone just telling me their story. And there's been certain novels and, and particularly YA books where there's such a strong voice that it works so well for audio. And I think it's when it's like first person point of view because it feels like someone just telling their story. Um, I mean, The Hunger Games, it's like, it was famous for that. It was not only first person, but present tense. So it's like, it's like she's telling you what's happening in the moment. So it feels like a lot of, you know, YouTube videos that you watch where like someone's touring something and they're narrating it. But yeah, for fiction, uh, I really do prefer the physical book. It's like I'm holding a doorway into another world, that experience of walking through it page by page. Yeah. As a busy mom, I do a lot of audio as well in my personal life. I do prefer the hardcovers in general, but when I'm doing the dishes or driving to work or, you know, uh, any of these sorts of things, I can be listening. And I do think there is a more tangible, real, emotional component to audiobooks over ebooks because there is a human on the other end of the line with imparting emotion and tone and a good uh, voice actor or voice actress can really make the story come alive in a different way than you would read it just straight off the paper. 
Well, we haven't even talked about the Enclave audiobooks, which are done by our, our top sponsor, uh, Oasis Family Media. They were doing audiobooks before they were cool and then have moved into the print publication. So now every, I think by now, certainly every new Enclave published title also has an audiobook version uh, in addition to the, the digital copy that you can download. So maybe we need to work on a sequel to this episode. How do fantastical audiobooks uh, get made? I like both. Uh, I'm actually listening right now to one uh, Enclave audiobook title. Uh, and then also uh, reading another one. But I, I do resonate with, I think Zach mentioned uh, that, uh, no, I think Jamie mentioned that, yeah, even if you have a title that you like in the digital copy or the audiobook, which happened with me with Dune, if you like it a lot, you want to get the print copy to take up space and be a conversation piece for yourself, if nobody else, on your bookshelf. And that's what I did with this glorious, you know, shiny, a really mystical desert planety looking uh, copy of Dune. Uh, Zach already has it, and then it went on sale at Amazon last Black Friday. So I picked it up. It's my Christmas gift to me. I'm so happy, uh, <laughs> and indeed it it does. It's all about the happiness there. Like I have a book. I I have a story. Unless there's a terrible house fire or something, no one can take that. You know, the license won't run out over Kindle, or it won't get a sudden politically correct disclaimer in the digital copy. Uh, or anything like that. Uh, it is it is permanent. And I think people are looking for permanent things. And they're looking for authors and artists who invest so much uh, into uh, these stories, who take them seriously, who are earnest about them, and who believe that they have value. So Stephen, a couple of years ago, I wrote this article for Lorehaven about will there be books and libraries on the new earth after Jesus returns? Uh, or is... Uh, Will there be basically products of human creativity and culture? And I, I make the argument that there will be, but now I'm starting to wonder, is there going to be Kindles and e or eBooks and audiobooks in the new, the new heavens and new earth? Or will everything be tangible? Will, will there be digital goods? Like uh, that's, that's a really weird thing to think about. Like, are we going to have computers? Well, surely there will be. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, there's nothing unholy about them and we don't mean to diss the eBooks. Uh, it's great to have on a plane, for example, uh, when uh, weight is at a premium, but there is, there is something about the tangibility and but we'll be able to teleport everywhere. So we won't need cars. We won't have a commute. Well, some people think that you'll know everything like Jesus and that doesn't make any sense at all. There'd be no fun. You wouldn't be learning anything that there would be no leveling up in the new heavens and new earth if that were true, but that's not true. There's going to be different levels of heavenly rewards, different levels of knowledge, and you'll still be able to learn stuff. And I think even make up uh, new stuff. Uh, one thing there may not be though is Christian bookstores. Uh, those have all gone by the wayside right now. I'm pretty sure those are not coming back. I kind of wish they would though, maybe even alongside a blockbuster video. But uh, in case anybody hasn't been, uh, you know, around this circle very much, Jamie, like. I don't think there's a whole lot of Christian bookstores to stock Enclave titles. Most folks are getting them from online retailers, but it's not just Amazon taking over everything. I've seen Enclave titles at christianbook.com. You can get them at conferences that the Realm Makers bookstore travels to. There's been a lot of uh, homeschool conferences coming up this year, uh, especially in May. So uh, check their website to see where they're coming up. Where else can people get uh, Enclave titles? Uh, how do they get from uh, the publisher to the readers? And we'll close out with that. 
Well, the standard answer is wherever books are sold, which unfortunately is mostly Amazon these days. But we do um, work with Christian Books Distributor. So christianbook.com, you can get any Enclave book. There are some mom and pop bookstores that are still around, at least where I live in Texas. We have our local little mom and pop bookstore, which is a Christian bookstore. Um, so you you can find <laughs> our books there or they can connect to the great interwebs and um, order our books at the very least. Um, so there there are those connections. But yeah, unfortunately, Family Christian Lifeway, we have lost a lot of the old great um, large Christian bookstore chains. And unfortunately, there's nothing that Enclave can do about that. But whenever anybody comes out to sell Christian books, we would absolutely love to connect with them. Well, Jamie, it's been great to have you. Uh, of course, uh, enclavepublishing.com is where you can find all the info that you all are willing to release uh, about the upcoming titles. A bunch more coming out in 2024. We've had the uh, publisher, Steve Lobby, on the show before talking about how you guys are enhancing your output. It used to be a book a month, and now it's like uh, one and a half times that amount this year, and then even more going forward into 2025. So you all are going crazy over there. Pray for these folks, faithful listeners, but also stay tuned to Enclave Publishing. And of course, we have all of those titles. Whenever they release, uh, they pop up in the Lorehaven Library as well, and we are staying on top of that. So we know which books uh, we want to review and had a lot of uh, Enclave authors on this show, uh, in addition to uh, there being uh, the top sponsor uh, throughout uh, the last year or so, and then uh, going forward into this year also. So, Jamie, EnclavePublishing.com, but you, your books, we'll have you back on and talk about your books as well, because you make some. Uh, let's tell us about those and then uh, give your personal contact info and socials also. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, I do I do write uh, Christian books as well. Um, my books are indie, so they're not published with Enclave. And their so typesetter is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was working for Thomas Nelson for the longest time, and God told me to stop and to, to quit and to start writing. And I was like, God, are you serious? I don't know if you know this, God, but I work for a Christian publisher and books are not the big thing anymore. It's video games and Netflix and stuff like that. And God was like, I'm going to beat you over the head with a metaphorical spiritual two by four until you obey. And I was like, oh, fine. So that doesn't I, sound like a loving God. <laughs> well, it turns out he knows what my actual good is in the end. And uh, about 10 years later, I would say that he has brought a lot of things to fruition and I'm very grateful for the success that he has brought me. But boy, it took a lot of learning and a lot of editing. <laughs> but my books are uh, Christian, young adult, sci-fi and fantasy. I have a uh, like a dystopian series called the Sentinel Trilogy, which I wrote for teenage boys because I noticed that all the books that are teenage, not to say all, but most of them are like female protagonist and I don't know about you, but most boys are not super hip with like the feelings <laughs> and, all of the, and the romance and that sort of stuff. So I have a book series that's more about um, what I have observed as a woman, obviously, as the journey of manhood with plenty of adventure and uh, humor as well. And then my newer series is for teenage girls, and it's more fantasy, like a classic fantasy. We have dragons, we have political intrigue, we have all that sort of stuff, and that's a four-book series. So you can find all my books at jamiefoley.com, or if you just go to Amazon and search Jamie Foley, all my weird random Christian books will come up. <laughs> Do with them what you will. And do with them what you will means buy them uh, because we want more of these kinds of books, uh, not just to pay the authors and artists, but because these books glorify God. Uh, we at Lorehaven love these kinds of stories. We want to see more of them. We want to see more of the life change that great stories can give to readers. And 
You can talk about the, the books all you like, which is what we do at Lorehaven, but someone's got to go out and make them. So we're glad that you all are making uh, not just uh, them already, but more of them. So Jamie, thank you all so much. And uh, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you so much. It was such a blessing to talk with you guys today. Thanks, Jamie. Well, our thanks to Jamie Foley for joining us today and telling us how books work and how they are made. That was really fun. And it was really cool just to hear her geek out, Stephen, on the different aspects of interior design that she really loves and what you know what she would love to do. And I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that because anyone who's an artist, you know, they, they have the things that they love to geek out of. And it may not be what we normally think of as something that's interesting. But it was really fun to hear all the ways that she likes to to work those things in. So that's great. Uh, definitely check out Enclave Books to see more of that. Uh, we're going to go to the comm station now. And um, we've got a, a question to ask you all. So you can email us uh, your answer to podcast at lorehaven.com. And our question is kind of going off of what I was just sharing in the last segment. Do you prefer hardbacks, paperbacks? Uh, ebooks or audiobooks what's your favorite format of a book and are you like me where you like different formats for different things has that changed over time for you so send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com uh, we're going to read a note here from s dorman who wrote to us after our last episode 195 about morality versus personal liberation in stories and apparently i said something about satire in that you'll have to go back and listen i don't quite remember what i said But S. Dorman said, quote, Hi, Zach. I believe it was you that had a self-satirical comment on the Minimize Morality podcast. Have you ever done a podcast devoted to satire, such as satire by Christians? I'd love to listen if there is one. Well, I've uh, exchanged a couple emails with this person, and thank you for that note. We interviewed a former writer from the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian satire website that's kind of like a fake news site, and everything's uh, satirical. They put out anywhere from four to eight articles per day. So that was episode 30 of our podcast. So the guest was Frank Fleming, and it was How Can the Babylon Bee's Satire Reflect Our Crazy Reality? So that was a number of years ago we did that. Then more recently for episode 151, we interviewed David Umstadt about his book, The Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded, which has an awesome cover. We're talking about cover design. You got to see this cover. And that was How Can Fantastical Satire Sharpen Our Theology? So definitely check out the Babylon Bee, Frank Fleming, and David Umstadt for some great examples of uh, Christians writing satire. I love being part of the Babylon Bee uh, community. I've, I've, been, I've pitched something like 1,700 headlines in the forum and uh, had about 10 published. Um, and you know, the, the Bee has, has occasionally will come under fire for some joke that they've done. I'm not going to go into examples, but just even just in general, I think a lot of people misunderstand what satire is or what its purpose is. Um, satire can be cruel or, or comedy can be cruel. Comedy can be very harsh. And I think it comes down to uh, the, the, I guess, dichotomy between truth and grace, that we are supposed to speak the truth in love, that Jesus was full of truth and grace. But, um, you know, the best comedy, I think, helps people laugh at themselves. I have read a number of Babylon Bee headlines and even the Onion headlines, which I don't really care for the Onion anymore. I've read a number of headlines that have sort of stung me, and then I had a good laugh about it. And I, and I think that's, that's the right response. I think sometimes, though, p- 
people are too full of themselves, frankly, or just too humorless, or they're they're too uh, controlling of what other people say that they're not willing to take a joke or give a joke. Uh, I I think we're getting into a very serious age that uh, that where comedy is not welcome. But I I think satire is a very good use for the uh, of writing for the Christian, and I think you see satire in the Bible, and maybe and we've talked about that in previous episodes, so you can go listen. I'll definitely listen also to a more recent episode, 190, Why Should We Enjoy Spicy and Sugary Stories in Moderation? Satire is included in those spicy hot takes in comparison to the more uh, cooler, more milquetoast uh, stories. Either one of those can be taken to excess and enjoyed for idolatrous ends. So we paired them both together, sort of a uh, holiday special just last month as we record. All those links in the show notes. Next on Fantastical Truth, we explore a lot of Christian-made fantastical books here at Lorehaven, but what about video game stories? What about Christians who are making different kinds of playable adventures set in worlds like the Wingfeather Saga or the Redwall series? Chris Skaggs, the founder and operator of Soma Games, helps us play video games for Christ's glory while he takes us behind the scenes at his studio. Meanwhile, the next time you open that glorious hardback or pull up that file on your e-reader device or app, or even tune into that latest audiobook, thank God for the many creators, not just the authors, but the typesetters, the editors, the cover designers, the marketers, the people running the printing presses, all of those folks who are practicing their vocation for the glory of God, even as you hopefully enjoy that story for God's glory as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>